So we go from the darkest period in our uh, Battle of the Atlantic period in late 1942 to essentially turning the tide and being able to drive the U-boats off uh, and ultimately go back to their one-on-one kinds of attacks until the end of the war. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me in studio, we have author and military historian Ted Barris. Welcome back to the program. David, a delight. Thanks for having me back. Your recent book, Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory, just came out earlier this year. Perfect timing for Remembrance Day. And you focus in on a a unique battle that involves Canada. What inspired you to write this book after all the others that you've compiled together? Well, it was one I hadn't covered before. Um, Those readers and listeners who have followed my work will know that most of my books tend to be a fairly narrow sliver of warfare. Um, The first book in the sort of genre of military history that I did comprehensive was a a book called uh, Juno, which was about the 6th of June, 1944, the landing of the Allies in France. So that's one day. Um, I did a book about the Battle at Vimy Ridge in the First World War, which was four days in 1917. Uh, I did a book about the Dam Busters, which was May the 16th, 1943. In other words, narrow uh, sections of the war. The Battle of the Atlantic was the longest battle of the Second World War. It went for 2,074 days. Wow. So how do you put... 2,074 days between two covers of a book. It's not easy. It would have been a monster if I'd tried to do a comprehensive day-by-day-by-day kind of blow-by-blow story. Can't do it. But because my focus has always been people and the sense of Canadians and others who participated, because the Battle of the Atlantic was not just about Canadians, it's about Americans, it's about British, it's about Germans. Getting the stories of individuals for me from this extraordinary 2,074-day battle was important. So I could pick and choose. And interestingly enough, my father, Alex Barris, and I had written a book back in 1995 uh, about the end of the Second World War. We called it Days of Victory. And it focused on a lot of different veterans' experiences leading up to May the 8th, 1945, VE Day, and VJ Day later in August of 1945. But in order to get those interviews, which Dad and I did comprehensively, we, we, he went to Eastern Canada, I went to Western Canada, we brought back dozens and dozens, scores of interviews. Mm. And in order to get the stories of what happened to veterans at the end of the war, we had to talk to them about their wartime experiences. Many of them had talked about the Battle of the Atlantic material which I did not use. Hmm. It's been sitting on the shelf screaming at me Hmm. for about 30 years. And I was suddenly drawn to the need to to address it. And here was the pandemic. Interesting. Thanks for that overview. Uh, From the outset of this battle, how did it impact the production of of Canada during World War II. At the beginning of the war, when Britain declares war on Germany on the 3rd of September, 1939, Canada declared war a week later. Canada had an arsenal of warships that numbered merely 13 ships. That was it. Five and a half, six years later, Canada had the fourth largest navy on the planet. We went from zero to 100 in six years, or we went from... 13 ships to 400 fighting ships in those five and a half, six years. 
And the reason that it happened, well, we were certainly called to task to, to protect three coastlines, you know, east, west, north, and so on. But because Britain had declared war and we were a Commonwealth country, we had to step up. And so initially, we were borrowing ships from the United States. We were borrowing ships from the, from the Royal Navy to incorporate uh, into our Navy to protect our shorelines. But the vast production of warships fell to one man, a very well-known uh, politician in that era, Canadian C.D. Howe. Mm. He was originally the Minister of Transport, but during the war, he became known as the Minister of Supply and Services, a.k.a. the Minister of Everything. <laughs> he had the purse strings. It was his job to ramp up production, in this case, of Canada's Corvette Navy. That was these small ships that were uh, designed to be fast, maneuverable, have a powerful punch with their explosives, and to be uh, escorts that could move, maneuver quickly in and around uh, the convoys and, and deflect, drive down, or indeed ram or destroy the U-boats. Hmm. And so Canada's Corvette Navy went from nothing uh, when Churchill decided that that was going to be the tool that would be used to fight the U-boats. We had as many as ultimately about 250, 300 Corvettes in our service by the end of the war. Wow. And we're grinding them out from all of the main shipyards around the Great Lakes, uh, Collingwood, Midland, Kingston, um, along the eastern seaboard in New Brunswick and in Quebec. They're punching out these Corvettes, ultimately one or two or three of them a month, ultimately, when the war is reaching its peak. And they're all flowing to Halifax and, and, and uh, St. John's to be dispatched to chase uh, the U-boats and to defend the convoys. So this was a massive undertaking. And people said, we're, to, to C.D. Howe, we're spending millions of dollars. What's, what's the accountability for that? He, you know, how can we account for the reality of spending that horrendous amount of money? And he said, what's the alternative? If mm. we don't and we lose the war, what's the matter? What, you know, it doesn't really matter anymore. But this was a time when... It was desperate times. We either did this or we would lose the war. And we came that close to losing the war on the Battle of the Atlantic. Wow. I want to get to that. But before we do, for those who aren't as versed in, in military history, I know you define these at the beginning of your book, but some of the terms U-boat, Corvette, uh, Merchant Navy, could you just give us what those are in a nutshell? Okay. The U-boat was a submarine. That's the, the German reference was a, for the submarine was a U-boat. Uh, unter, meaning under. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and the U-boat Waffe was the, the U-boat flotillas. And these were um, submarines that were about 200 feet long, um, housed maybe if, at their peak, uh, contained maybe 85 to 100 men. Um, and they were able to travel, depending on the type, because there were a number of uh, evolutions of the U-boat through the war. The most principally used one was a, sort of a Type 7 U-boat. And it could travel from uh, occupied France when the, the Germans ultimately began to build their U-boat pens on the west coast of France and then send the U-boats into the Atlantic from there. They could travel all the way to Newfoundland mm. or Nova Scotia and be it on patrol for up to, say, two weeks. Um, and then they'd have to return because they probably would have expanded their torpedoes. Merchant ships were the vessels that were built to supply the convoys to ultimately deliver the goods to Britain to keep Britain alive. They were so close to being pulverized by the Luftwaffe with the Blitz, the Luftwaffe trying to wipe out the RAF in southern England. All of that um, might have driven England out of the war and Churchill might have been leading the war from Ottawa had they lost. 
So wow. the convoys were designed to deliver the goods to keep Britain alive. Hence the merchant ships uh, taking freight and fuel from North America to Britain. And in spite of the fact that the losses to the convoys of the merchant ships were so devastating in the first couple of years of the war, up to 80% of uh, the losses were the responsibility of the Canadian escorts in the early part of the war, eventually the convoys managed to deliver 90,000 tons of freight and fuel to Britain every day of the war. That's 2,074 days of the war, of the battle, 90,000 tons delivered to keep Britain alive. So that's what the merchant ships did. The corvettes were the small fighting ships that were initially designed after a French design um, of whaling ships, which Mm. Churchill adopted as the means of developing a cheap and nasty fighting force. In fact, that's what he called them, the cheap and nasties, the corvettes. (laughs) And the design was initially taken by the Royal Navy for construction of these small, compact fighting ships adopted by Canada. C.D. Howe's investment of of government money funding the the building of these ships by the dozens, um, ultimately supplying the escort service for the convoys from North America to Britain and back. So it was the Corvette Navy. Hmm. Okay, that's really helpful. You mentioned, Ted, that uh, we came this close to losing the Battle of the Atlantic. And in your book, you take uh, quite a bit of time to describe some of the uh, really successful Germans that are uh, driving these U-boats and are very uh, are very lethal in the waters. Uh, would it be fair to say that the Germans had the upper hand at the beginning? Absolutely. And that's because of Admiral Karl Dönitz. Dönitz was the uh, vice admiral of the Kriegsmarine, Krieg meaning war in German, Marine meaning uh, the Navy. He had actually been a submariner, a U-boat submariner sailor in the first war, was captured in 1918, repatriated to Germany, stayed with the U-boat service through the interwar years. And when the Second World War begins in 1939, he is elevated to the rank of rear admiral in charge of all the U-boats. His tactics that were developed uh, from his own experience from the First World War and adapting to the conditions of the Second World War were the cause of such devastation against the Allies in the Mm -hmm. Atlantic. He took the U-boat, which had initially been a kind of a lone wolf strategy. Take a U-boat with, you know, a dozen, 15, 20 torpedoes, send it out to wreak havoc on the convoys whenever uh, the commander of a U-boat spotted them. His strategy was, no, When a U-boat spots the convoy, don't fire. Shadow. That was the first step. Mm. Then call all the other U-boats from as many as 100 miles away to gather, to assemble around the convoy to create even more devastation against the convoys than had originally been planned or or strategized. His, His tactics were these. Don't attack from a submerged position, which would have meant they were in a more in a safer position because they were invisible. Attack on the surface. On the surface, a U-boat was much faster than it was submerged. Logically, it's there's less resistance in the water, more maneuverable on the surface, mm. and invisible on the surface. I know that sounds kind of odd, mm-hmm. but the Allies had a not very accurate detecting system in their warships at the beginning of the war called ASDIC. ASDIC detected by sonar, sending sound waves into the depths of the ocean, uh, objects and then they would ping off the the object and come back and identify them the pings as U-boats on the surface as Dick was useless hmm. so Dunnett says we're now going to attack 
with a shadow leading the way, assembly of other U-boats into a pack, using our speed and our maneuverability and our ability to escape detection with Aztec, and the final element of surprise, attack at night. Hmm. And that made the U-boat wolf packs, or what Donitz called Rudel Tactic, absolutely lethal in large numbers. The wolf packs were the decimation of so many of the convoys right through the, to the middle of the war. Wow. You've mentioned how Canada was successful at bringing lots of ammo over to Britain, but how did the Allies find a way to counter this lethal attack? Well, it took time. Um, in fact, the, the darkest hour for Canadians was late in 1942. Um, ironically, the Royal Canadian Navy, as much as it was building ships quickly and um, warships and merchant ships, our forces were thin. We only had several thousand regular Navy personnel at the beginning of the war. Volunteers stepped up in what was known as the RCNVR, the Royal Canadian Volunteer Naval Reserve. In other words, people who just volunteered for the war. And they populated the Navy in Canada more than half to essentially expand the force to thousands and thousands of sailors. Um, that was one of the crucial problems they faced, ramping that up quickly enough. Late in 1942, um, the Royal Canadian Navy was responsible for the mid-North Atlantic. There was no air coverage of Allied aircraft from either North America, Iceland, or Britain. So we were literally in no man's land in the middle of the, of the North mm. Atlantic defending the convoys against the U-boat packs. We sustained the worst casualties because Canadians didn't have the best detection devices. We didn't have the best weaponry, mm. unlike the Americans and the British. They had it all. We didn't. Mm. So Churchill, late in 1942, recognizing that these losses are horrendous, almost to the point of no return, Wow. He says the Canadians are off the North Atlantic. He's taking them off because hmm. the casualty rates were so horrific. He then demands that King, Prime Minister Mackenzie King, send the Canadians and their ships to Britain to be refitted with the modern technology of detection and, and weaponry and for retraining. They're then The Canadians are then sent, because it's early 1943, they're then sent to the Mediterranean where a huge operation is underway, Operation Torch, to deliver troops to North Africa to fight the Germans in North Africa. And the Canadians are escorting that flotilla into the Mediterranean. What happens in the early stages of that uh, invasion uh, as the ships move into the Mediterranean? The Canadians kill three U-boats in a wow. month. Why? Because the Mediterranean, you can see the shore, the North Shore, the East Shore, the West Shore, and the South Shore of the Mediterranean. is shallower, and the Canadians step up with the new equipment, the new training, and they knock out three U-boats in a month. The Canadians go back to the North Atlantic in 1943, and by May, the U-boat packs have been dispersed because the Canadians have the skill, the capability, and the mechanism to deflect the U-boats and break them up. So we go from the darkest period in our uh, Battle of the Atlantic period in late in 1942 to essentially turning the tide and being able to drive the U-boats off uh, and ultimately go back to their one-on-one -on -one kinds of attacks until the end of the war. It's a neat success story. It is. And it's neat how Canada was able to help Britain and Britain's able to help Canada. Absolutely. I mean, when you, when you, when you look at those dark days, I mean, Churchill was absolutely right. The, the Canadians were not up to the task in late 1942 because they didn't have the equipment and the training. When they got it, they used um, whatever ways and means they'd had previously with mm. the sophistication of training and equipment, and they got the job done. It's incredible. Could you give us a little bit of a sense of, of what the battle entailed, like the conditions for, the, for those fighting at sea? 
very uncomfortable. Both the the U-boat submariners who are claustrophobic inside those uh, submarines, um, the the losses that the U-boat service uh, sustained during the war were horrendous. Initially, as we've discussed, the U-boats had the upper hand. Their tactics outstripped the convoys and devastated many of the early convoys. But as the Allies gained their experience, um, brought more training and and sophisticated weaponry into play in the in the Battle of the North Atlantic and begun to meet the tide of, of the U-boats, the U-boats began to lose. At the end of the war, when all the losses were tallied, the U-boat service, which had had something like 40,900 submariner uh, U-boat sailors enlist and serve in about 860 U-boats, 696 of those U-boats, 84% of them were either destroyed or sunk, which meant that something like 25,000 submariners died, mm. the highest service loss per capita in the war. That was what it was like to be in the U-boat Navy. Um, towards the end of the war, the life expectancy of a submariner on a U-boat was less than 100 days. Oh. On the other side, the Corvette Navy sailors in Canada had to deal with very cramped conditions aboard those small Corvettes. The size of a Corvette, it's about 200 feet long and about 33 feet wide. I did a little bit of a calculation to determine how much square footage that would be mm-hmm. to house 85 to 100 men inside a Corvette. They would all be, you know, torpedo men or Aztec sailors or uh, whatever uh, rank and, and job aboard the Corvette. If you've got 85 to 100 men inside a space 200 feet long and 33 feet wide, it's about the same size as an average Canadian bungalow. Mm. So imagine 85 to 100 guys <laughs> in a cramped space like that for two to three weeks with no showers. <laughs> Get a and stinky. then and and bobbing around on the surface of the ocean like corks oh. which meant that those ships were pretty violently mm. responsive to the conditions of the of the north atlantic if you suffered for any form of seasickness it was an impossible life to live impossible mm. and yet they sustained themselves overcame the problems and drove the u-boats down Hmm. So towards the end of the battle of the atlantic there's the iconic secret meeting between churchill and FDR happens on the coast of Newfoundland. But even at this point, uh, the States is holding their ground of, of entering the war. But what happens here that is so uh, precedent setting for not just the rest of the Battle of the Atlantic, but the rest of World War II? When FDR and Winston Churchill meet for the first time, it's in... August of 1941, and the Battle of the Atlantic has been going on for the British for two years. The Americans still aren't in the war yet because they there's this uh, sentiment in the United States to remain out of a European war. We don't want to get sucked into yet another European war after the Great War, 1914 to 18. So this sentiment is fighting any drive for the Americans to enter the war. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is very sympathetic to the Allied cause. He wants to be involved in the war because he realizes it's going to affect the Americans eventually anyway. Mm -hmm. So in 1941, FDR goes aboard the Potomac, which is a former Coast Guard cutter off the coast of um, Massachusetts, I think. And an imposter is seen to be walking on the Potomac out at sea 
And, of course, the press has been watching because they're eager to know what the president is doing. Meanwhile, he's snuck aboard the USS Augusta and has slipped out of America and gone to Argentia, Newfoundland. Meanwhile, Winston Churchill has snuck to Scapa Flow, gone aboard the HMS Prince of Wales, which was the ship that sank the Bismarck, and has snuck to Argentia for the secret meeting. And the meeting brings these two leaders together for the very first time. They had never met. They'd communicated with each other many times. And here's how they plan, ultimately, the role of the United States and Britain in the Battle of the Atlantic, ultimately winning the war eventually. They know they will. It'll take time. And what the rest of the world will look like after the war. Hmm. And they create what's known as the Atlantic Charter. And it's essentially a, a long series of proclamations to determine what the desires are of the Commonwealth and the United States of America after the Second World War, that there's no territorial designs on power or territory or water by either power, the United States or the United Kingdom, simply a a wish to make the the seas free again, um, free from attacks by U-boats and fascists, and essentially to restore the, the order of the Commonwealth and the United States and the rest of the world at the end of the war for peacetime service and the, and the freedom for shipping and, and, and life to carry on. So it's an interesting meeting of these two men um, and the Canadians are part of it because many of the Canadians escorted uh, mm-hmm. uh, Churchill from mm-hmm. uh, across the Atlantic to Argentia and actually participate in the protection of the USS Augusta and the HMS Prince of Wales while they're in Argentia with these meetings in August of 1941. But it all starts in that battle of the Atlantic, the, the beginning of what would lead the allies to a momentous victory that we need to recognize and remember uh, during this season. Thank you so much for joining me on this conversation. Ted Barris, author of many books, but his latest battle of the Atlantic gauntlet to victory. Thanks David. And of course, if you want to read up on any more of what Ted shared, you can get a copy of his book, the battle of the Atlantic. I've also got show notes for you at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. This time of year, we need stories like these so that we can better identify with really the conditions in war. I don't know about you, but hearing how unequipped Canadians initially were at sea and the fact they would still go to war for our future speaks volumes to what they were willing to lay down. The promise that freedom could come at the end of it. And it makes me just grateful and makes me parallel this to the great prophets who, I mean, they didn't have the best conditions. They weren't glamorous in what they lived in. And yet they endured as God's faithful messengers for the future, for you and for me. And I just want to remind you that as a Christian, you stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before you, who were tested and tried, just like you are. But they remain faithful to Jesus, and I want to encourage you to hold fast as well. Do check out the Culture at a Crossroads archive. You can find that at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. 